This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookends. Kia ora, welcome to Bookends with Maren Rout and Ruth Todd. This week, Maren? Well, it's interesting. This is sort of serendipity rather than uh, being well organised, but I'm going to be talking to a writer with her first book, a New Zealand novel. My writer, Rebecca Riley, I think is just at the beginning of a long and very fruitful career. And you've got Elizabeth Smither, who has been around a while. A long time. writes wonderful short stories, poetry yeah, and novels. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Two writers at either end of the spectrum, although I would say Elizabeth has got a lot more books in her. I think she has, yes. She doesn't say no. I'm reading a magazine about how to look after plants. My back is to the window. Some sunshine is still coming through the clouds and warming my back despite the rain. I wonder what plant I would be if I were a plant. Maybe something with big leaves that drop sulkily if not provided with the exact right amount of water and light. Maybe something with intent to take over with long creeping tendrils sneaking their way up a banister. I love to be up high somewhere and see that a plant has taken over down below. There's something like that at the university. A window you can look out of and see that a big monstera has taken control over a negative space between buildings. A space there's no access to and is therefore of no use to humans. I feel like that could be my final evolution. V has entered the apartment while I've been thinking about this, but he hasn't said, hello, Greta, how's your day been, or anything polite like that. He seems completely vexed and perturbed by something. I watch him in his navy coat and undone scarf, standing in front of the door with his keys still in his hand. There are flecks of rain on his glasses. I wonder if he's going to tell me what happened, or just go into his room and shut the door and put on Sufjan Stevens. Sometimes he doesn't think that I could be of any assistance because he thinks I'm too young to understand anything. Greta, I wait behind the magazine. Greta, I have to go to Buenos Aires. Why is that? Work. We got sponsorship from an airline and now I have to go to Buenos Aires in two weeks. Did you tell Shabi you're going to be there? He looks at me. He's still standing in front of the door, perfectly still, with his arms slightly out as if he's waiting to be crucified. No. Do you think I have to? Is that the right thing to do? You don't have to do anything. But I don't know. You'd feel bad if he found out that you came to his city and didn't tell him. Worse than if you'd been upfront about it. Why would he find out that I'd been there? From a local informant? No, V, your show was on TV. Oh, yes, right. Greta, what if he's dead? What? He isn't dead. We would know if he were dead. What if you know that he's dead and no one's told me because they're afraid that this is going to be the one thing that sends me over the edge and I'll never be able to function in society again? I sigh and close the magazine. Shabi isn't dead. No one cares to spare your feelings so much that they would concoct an elaborate plan to cover up that Shabi is dead. Also, he's quite prominent in his field, so someone would probably start a hashtag to mourn him. I muted every word that I could think of that had anything to do with him, including art, man... Catalonian independence and bisexual. Greta, yes? He pauses for a second, still not having moved. I'm still in love with him. Okay, I say as if I've never heard him crying listening to I'm Not In Love by 10cc. I think I'm just going to have to call him, he says, and walks right back out the door. All right, goodbye, I say to no one. 
if it had been me, I would have just sent an email. That was Rebecca K. Riley reading from her first novel, Greta and Valden, which has just come out. And I found it really riveting, Rebecca, I have to say. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, from the first chapter when um, Valden, V, mm-hmm. is talking, it just pulled me in, the tone of the, the writing, the, the, um, the humour, Everything about it was it felt very contemporary and very, very entertaining, but also quite intriguing. Well, that's good. That's what you want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so, Greta and Valdens, the beginning of it has a list of characters, and often that can be off-putting to people because they think, oh, I'm going to have to cope with all these people. For me, it's always been um, a very enticing thing because I think, good, a great big sprawling novel with lots of people. Did you start off with this list of characters or did you just acquire them as the story evolved? Do you mean did I start off with so many characters or did I start off with the list? (laughs) (laughs) Well, did you know that this was going to involve so many characters when you began? Uh, Yes. Yeah, I definitely knew straight away. I think... um, it was a decision that I had to make if I was going to how many perspectives I was going to use in this novel because I had considered doing, you know, maybe like nine or ten. <laughs> but then I thought I'd better stick with two. So it, it alternates between Greta and Valden. Mm-hmm. And I hope I'm saying his name properly, Valden. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Um, who are brother and sister, as I think. Yeah possibly comes across in, in your reading. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so two very distinct voices that you had to um, develop. How do, you, how do you go about doing that? Um, I think it was quite difficult. I think that um, an issue with having different narrators is them sounding too much the same. Or sounding too different and then people being like, is this doesn't really feel like a cohesive book either. Um, I found that um, because I wrote this book in a workshop that people would often say, oh, they just sound the same as each other, even when I thought they sounded quite different because, you know, you are still the same person (laughs) writing both of them. But I think that, you know, they're different to me and I think as the book goes on, it becomes more and more obvious that they think differently about things. And... um, have different takes on the same events and stuff as well. I guess because, as I say, it has a very contemporary feel to it. There are there are things that they, you know, ways of speaking that they possibly share because mm-hmm. that's the way people talk. And <laughs> but you're right, they're quite different. Tell me, a, do a little potted history of Greta and Valden. Um. Okay. So. Um, Valden is, I think, four and a half, five years older than Greta, and they um, they have an older brother as well. So Casper's the oldest, he's 34, and then um, Valden is 29, and he actually turns 30 very soon in the book, and then he never talks about it. It just stops mentioning his age, but he's turned 30. <laughs> and, um, and Greta's 25, and Valden has done this PhD in 
physics and then was working in that field for maybe like a year and then thought actually no this is not what I want to be doing and then had this enormous breakdown had to go and live with their parents again and then has somehow become this local comedian slash television host of this travel show and is like finally kind of living the life he wants to but then just feels very lost without his ex who he hasn't thought about for a couple of years but now everything's going right he's like oh you know what happened to that relationship and Greta is doing her masters in comparative literature and is realizing more and more that that's not a very helpful thing to be studying or she doesn't really she doesn't want to go into academia which is exactly what happened to her brother and is kind of freaking out about that yeah, they um, and gender is very fluid in this book, which is great because it just doesn't become an issue. Yeah, I think that <laughs> like that's the way I feel. So that's that's what I wanted the book to be like. Yeah, it's, it's as I say, it, it, you know, everybody is exploring or maybe not even exploring. They've they're at at ease with who they are. Yeah. So the reader just goes along with whatever's happening, whoever is with whom, whomever. <laughs> I think that that's, I think that's something that I just don't really think about like in my own life. And then so when I write like that, I think sometimes people are surprised by it. This anyone will seem to like go out with anyone and no one really has a problem with it. Um, but I think that if, you know, you can pull off writing a story in that way, then it isn't, um, uh, isn't like disturbing to the reader they're not like well, why is this happening this feels weird it just if the characters are like no this is normal then I think that usually the reader can <laughs> go along with that well I mean that's how it works um, with maybe sci-fi or something like that um, or even a crime novel you know seven people get killed no one's like oh that's, that would never happen in real life um, yeah. well, that's the way the story works so that's the way it works anyone will go out with anyone of any gender in this book <laughs> Yeah, so I, it's refreshing in that sense because the family is so um, so accepting. It's it's a non-issue, and so you can get on and explore all sorts of other things in your story. It's like a big yeah. sprawling Russian novel to me. Um, yeah, and they, and they are part Russian, so that's very apt. Yeah, I have a few people tell me that they're you know a flatmate or something. I was like. Oh very much like a Russian novel, but I haven't personally read many Russian novels. So. Yeah, well, I have and I always enjoyed that because they start with a list of characters and then you yeah. just get plunged into all this drama that goes on amongst the people and it's humorous and it's lively and um, that's what I felt about your book. And even the place, um, Auckland, Tamaki Makaurau, seems like a character in the book as well. Yeah, it was um, when I wrote the book. I mean, I am I'm from Auckland, and I've lived there most of my life. But I wasn't there when I wrote the book. I wrote the book in Wellington, and so it does. I think it feels more of a the city feels more of a distinct thing in the book because I wasn't there. <laughs> like I wasn't writing about things that were outside, that were just a part of what was going on. It was I was having to think like how does that street look and you know, what do people usually do and where do they go and things. 
So you said you you um, most of the book was written while you were in a workshop at um, doing your masters down in mm-hmm. the IIML. How helpful was that? Uh, I I like I don't think I wouldn't have written the book if I hadn't been in the workshop. Um, it's I don't know I don't know how anyone manages to write a first book just alone, like having. I can't imagine even having the confidence to open a laptop and be like, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna write a book now." Um, but um, if you're in a workshop, you know, I mean, I it was difficult enough to just even apply for the workshop, and then when you go there, and then you know, obviously the course convener's like, "Okay, we need ten pages by next week or whatever." You're like, "Okay, I guess I'm doing it then." And, <laughs> but I don't think I, I couldn't have done it just by myself. Well, you did well enough to win the Adams Prize, which is a pretty coveted prize. So has this given you confidence to to head on for a second novel? Um, yeah, I, yeah, I guess so. This is something that I've only been thinking about in the last couple of weeks. I think everything, because um, like I finished the manuscript and then I got the Adam at the end of 2019 and then... <sighs> you know, signed the book contract at the end of February, I think, and then, you know, everything was steadily downhill from there. And so I always thought that, you know, something's going to happen to the book. Like, the whole world seems to have gone to pieces. Like, why would my book still come out? Um, And then, so I'm just very happy that it did. Um, And, yeah, so it's only been now that I'm... And then having quite positive feedback and stuff, I'm like, okay, I guess maybe I could write another book. But I don't know what it's going to be about. No, that doesn't matter. It's just the confidence to to <laughs> yeah, to get going. So. <laughs> well, I don't I'm, know. I'm happy to say this is a COVID-free book, so it's <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's entertaining, um, but you know, droll. I'd say wry, droll, good black humour, <laughs> wonderful characters, and so I can heartily recommend it. And well done, Rebecca. It's it's Thank a it's, it's a great first novel. The book is called Greta and Valden. It's by Rebecca K. Riley and it's published by Victoria University Press. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. This is um, an extract from the story called The Hotel and it's about two characters, one called William Schulberg and Rosie Buchanan, and they're spending a weekend together at a posh hotel, which quite resembles the Chateau Tongariro. Rosie thinks William might be going to propose, but William is intending to break up at the end of the weekend. Larry Schulberg had tried his hardest to dissuade William about the weekend, He expected his son would be depressed for a while and had a business project in mind for him. To give another priority, man or woman, when your own well-being was threatened was not something he would countenance. The young woman was obviously unsuitable, clinging, but William had this curious idea of a treat before the thing was over, like offering Anne Boleyn a box of chocolates before she had her head cut off. Hope the fool can manage it, he thought. They were back in the dining room, the same waiter, a different amuse bush offered by the chef. William thought if he lived in a hotel, he would soon seek out a pie or a boiled egg. There's something I want to say, not tonight, in the morning before we leave. 
Rosie was dipping a crust of bread into a dish of olive oil, the colour of melted gold. I'm not at my best in the morning, she said, looking up. She was thinking rumpled, in need of a toothbrush. So many things stilled at night, like the swallowing mechanism. Even the body needed a break. She didn't dare ask if it was good. It must be, or he would have considered her need to prepare herself. Once again, she allowed William to take her outstretched hand and pull her up the stairs. But tomorrow I will come down in the lift, she decided. And once inside the room, as she expected, he pulled her towards him as if he was pulling her into his body. They fell on top of the big bed, not even waiting to turn it back. Afterwards, they lay side by side, eating the peppermint creams and the gold foil that were left on the pillows each night. Rosie's damp forehead touched William's shoulder, and unseen to her, he winced a little. All that he had now would be withdrawn from him, including Rosie's hopes, which seemed to hover in the air above the bed. Before we go down to breakfast, he told himself, if we go down to breakfast... He reached for Rosie's hand and gave it a squeeze. Later, when she slept, he would go down to the desk and fix up the bill. It was raining when Rosie woke. The sound was so fine, muffled by the great mansard roof, the floors above, that at first she could not identify the sound. It was so soft, little more than a murmur, a hushing sound a mother might make to a child who was nearly asleep. She stretched out her hand, and William was not there. Rosie had been asleep when he went down to the desk and settled the bill, including the morning's two breakfasts. Then back in the room, he'd quietly opened the wardrobe door and packed all but the clothes he would need for the next day. Finally, he had eased himself into the bed and gone through the little speech he would deliver. Like the best speeches that had no interruptions, when he paused for sorrow or authenticity, he foresaw only a look in Rosie's eyes. It was a swiftly changing look, comprehension, forgiveness. Occasionally there was pain, but since she was a person of principle, it was quickly veiled. In his mind, he ploughed on until the final sentence was reached. Never, or at least not for several months, would William forget how his speech was received. He need not have feared interruption. Rosie simply clasped a pillow to her chest, and as he stumbled on, she clutched it tighter and tighter. Then, without a word, she got up and went into the shower. For a long time, he heard the water running and gurgling down the plug hole. She must have seen the empty rows of hangers in the wardrobe. He cursed himself for not being dressed, for being only in his boxes and an old T-shirt. Rosie, he said when she emerged from the bathroom, fully dressed, makeup in place. How did women do it? Dab the stuff on, outline their lips. He had thought there was something clownish in it, but now he saw it was courage. Don't speak, she said when her suitcase was packed. Here her control faltered, the garments were thrown in, and she missed her book left it on the bedside table. What he would do with it occupied him as long as the first pangs of regret. Stairs or lift. She could remember thinking that, knowing she would need her poise for the reception desk, the inquiry she would make about the earliest shuttle.
That was Elizabeth Smither reading from her new collection, The Piano Girls, 20 stories high point of life, reveal a future and show tenderness in the smallest detail. Elizabeth Smither believes there is no better way to examine what it is to be human. Welcome to the programme, Elizabeth. Thank you, Ruth. You have published so many short stories, so many novels, 18 collections of poetry, as well as journals and memoirs. It's an, an amazing legacy um, you have, and um, been Poet Laureate, uh, done all, had numerous awards, and I won't go through them all, but your latest poetry collection, Night Horse, won the Ockham New Zealand Book Award for Poetry in 2018. Where do all these amazing stories come from? Just, they're just little details, domestic details. Um, they compete with one another, really, and um, there's music, there's food, there's restaurants, uh, there's wonderful people. How do you still do it all? I can't imagine. <laughs> well, I, I like I like all the forms that I write, and I like the novel, and the short story, and the poetry. They're all they're all different, and they all have their own sort of um, pressures that they sort of bring to you when you try to write them. Um, I was looking at a quotation from um, Mavis Gallant, who wrote the most wonderful stories about Paris, and she said, a short story is what you see when you look out the window. And it's a lot of seeing in them, a lot of noticing things, it's noticing things about people. Not, not real people all the time, things you make up. Um, and uh, she also said something that interested me very much, and it was about how you should go about reading short stories. She said, there's something I keep wanting to say about reading short stories. Stories are not chapters of novels. They should not be read one after the other, as if they were meant to follow along. Read one, shut the book, read something else, come back later. Stories can wait and yes, that's what, that's, oh, that's what I love about them. That yes. you always, I always have a collection beside my bed, um, and I sometimes, you know, read a chapter of a novel uh, or read a short story, one or the other, and go then go to the other one. So I'm doing it right, aren't I? <laughs> you are. It's like reading a collection of poems. You know, you might get a collection, and you read a couple of short poems first, and then you sort of move around in the collection it's the same as a short story you just pick up one you think you might try and then read that and then put the book down and um, go and read the newspaper or something do you prefer one one of them or do you just love all three genres I love them all really. they're all different I think I think the novel is perhaps some, the one that requires um you know, a huge effort, really. I think when you write a novel, you're probably a little crazy by the end of it because it's taken such a lot of work. Um, a short story is easier to write in that sense, but it's harder, too, in lots of ways. It's more concentrated, and takes. I found it takes a lot of research to write a short story sometimes, depending on what you're writing about. But the details have got to be accurate, and um, especially when I was writing stories that were about music. I had to do a lot of, quite a lot of research to find that I've got the right music and written it in the correct way and so forth. Because music's one of your loves, isn't it? And it comes into many of your novels and your short stories. And I, I love that, um, I, especially if I've got a, you know, a CD, still got a CD with that music on it. I go away and play it while I read the story. <laughs> oh, I really like writing with the concert program on you. I don't find it's an interruption. It's um, rather lovely having it in the background, and who knows, it may improve the choice of word or the or the order or the rhythm of the words as you're writing. 
what's the, is there a difference? Is it when does a short story become a novella? <laughs> Well, that's what I'm trying to write at the moment, and novella is a really like a long short story. Um, mm. Perhaps like some of the short stories of Alice Munro that are that are really like miniature novels in a sense, and that they cover a whole span of span of life. Um, a novella will be sort of like the quarter of the length of a novel, probably. And I don't, again, there's lots of demands because you wander around in it, and you don't quite know what you're doing and where it's going and how it will end and so forth. Uh, so I think every every form of literature has its um, its own sort of rules which you try to break, but you find sometimes that the the form itself presses back on you and says, "No, this is not going to work." You your characters are so real; they walk off the page, and uh, you know I can think of other people I know, and I think, "Oh," and sometimes myself um, have I got that flaw. <laughs> <laughs> that your character has, because um, there are little flaws in everybody, I'm sure, and uh, you just bring it out with subtle wit and uh, just and always a compassion. That's what I I love too. Um, the, your stories are you, there's a gentleness about your stories, and uh, I often think about the situations like the one you read um, just now. Um, I'm feeling for that uh, poor woman. <laughs> Yes, it's a sort of it's um, the man has a different idea. He thinks that he's doing, doing you know, doing a good thing, and you know, by having this lovely time together, and then it will be over, and she'll remember the lovely time. But of course, the woman won't look at it in the same way at all. Not at all. No. No. So, People are fascinating, really. I, I think really that we all of us have lots of short stories in us, um, and that's how we look at our lives, really. It's very hard to look back on your whole life, but you can look back on things that happened to you, like a trip you took or something, or a, you know, lots of things we we do, and, and it, things form like little short stories. Well, I just think this is a marvellous collection, um, Elizabeth. It's the, called The Piano Girls, and... Uh, I think what Steve Braunius said in a review, the first thing about her short stories is that they immediately take you into their closest observed world of good, decent New Zealanders going about their emotional lives in chaos. And the second thing is their wit, and everything she writes is an instant delight. So I hope there are plenty more to come, um, and uh, I recommend the book highly. So Piano Girls by Elizabeth Smither is published by Quentin Wilson Publishing. Thanks very much, Elizabeth. Thank you very much, Ruth. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.